Good afternoon. All right. I, I, is the sound working? Sounds like it's working now. All right. It is a blessing to be back with you. I was texting with uh, Pastor Brian following the previous, uh, previous time I was here, and, and he was saying that he was going to listen to this uh, to the message later, and I said, great. And uh, he, he mentioned, he asked, how, how was I welcomed here? And I mentioned that I was incredibly well welcomed here, and I'm so thankful for that. I mentioned that the, uh, the greatest comment that I received back from speaking last week was four people came to me and said, you remind me so much of Pastor Brian. And so uh, I, I really do hold that as a dear comment. He's a great friend, and I know he's a, he's a great pastor. He, he handles the word well. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity to stand in this pulpit and open the word with you. So if you have your Bibles, open with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1. And uh, we're going to be looking at just the first couple of verses here. You'll notice up on the screen that I have a title for this sermon called The Born Again Identity. And if you're wondering where that title comes from, it's actually Pastor Brian's title. Uh, Mention was made, I think, last week that Pastor Brian and I wrote a commentary together on the book of 1 Peter. And it was a scholar-pastor kind of a thing, and and he wrote the section on uh, how to preach some things. And so he made various titles for the sections. Now, I can't promise that I'm always going to follow his titles, but this one was pretty good. So I decided to to steal it and uh, and use it for this morning, uh, or this afternoon. And you'll have to forgive me for that, because I'm used to preaching in the morning, and so I'm probably going to say morning a lot. My wife told me last time that I think uh, a couple of times I said morning. So when you hear morning, just think afternoon, okay? All right, so here we are in 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's read just the first few verses, and then we'll go to our sovereign Lord in prayer. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, in Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This, mor- this afternoon, we're going to be doing a bit of an introductory sermon. I don't generally do PowerPoints for, uh, for my messages, but I thought that today, as we begin a new series on First Peter, and as we walk through some introductory issues, especially with a map I'm going to show you in just a little bit, I thought that this would be helpful. So we're going we're gonna to walk through this PowerPoint in just a moment. Let's go to our Lord together in prayer before we do. Father in heaven, I'm so grateful for the opportunity that you have given to me to proclaim your word to these, your dear people. I'm thankful that you've called out an assembly of people here in the Belleville area. I'm grateful for the word that has been preached historically among these people, and I'm grateful that this morning as we look into the word into 1 Peter, that you have given to us something to consider that you have told us is like a sword that can pierce deeply into our hearts, discerning even our thoughts and intents and helping us to see the ways in which we are not like your son 
and the ways we need to become like your son. And so, Father, this morning, or this afternoon, I ask that you would help us to see what this message teaches us and to grow in light of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever spent significant time overseas? When I was 15 years old, the United States, made the, gov the United States government made the mistake of making, a, making me a student ambassador to Australia and New Zealand. And, uh, and I say that because I was a 15-year-old young man, and I was supposed to be representing what the United States of America was like. I probably didn't do a very good job of that. But I, I was able to stay for a good portion of the summer in Australia and New Zealand, and I discovered something that when you are in a foreign area, you know it. You feel foreign. You're foreign to the people. The people are foreign to you. Their customs, their traditions, the way they speak, almost everything. I mean, they, they speak English, right? You're wrong. <laughs> it, it, it's a form of English. All kinds of words are different. Probably the thing that's impacted me most and has scarred me so deeply, I recall their food was different than ours. And I remember being fed on one breakfast uh, for one morning at a breakfast spaghetti for breakfast. And that was deeply disturbing, but apparently that's what they do over there. And then once hearing, it's so excited, I was so excited, they told us we were going to have pizza. And then when the pizza arrived and it had corn on it, imagine my disappointment. So things are, are, are different in different cultural settings. And, and I discovered that as I, as I lived overseas for just even a short period of time. You see, I was a foreigner in a foreign land. Now, some of you may have experienced something far deeper than what I'm just talking about right here. Maybe you come from a place where they don't speak English where their customs are vastly different than the customs of the people here. And in your experience, it is very difficult to transition. Uh, of course, uh, here's an assembly. I don't know whether you guys are supporting any missionaries up to this point, but I'm sure uh, you have in the past. And you know that one of the most difficult things for missionaries is when they go overseas, they have to get used to living in a different place. And the, the cultural shock is real. Now you're asking, why am I talking so much about living overseas and, and being different in that way? It's because I think that's what Peter is talking about in the book of 1 Peter. And so we're going to develop from the book of 1 Peter this identity. We have an identity given to us by God. And it is an identity of foreigner, of exile, a stranger. And we're going to develop that here in just a moment. But what I wanted to do this afternoon is to begin to understand what is the letter of 1 Peter that we hold in front of us. I don't want to take for granted the fact that you are fully aware of all the things that the scriptures teach on these things. And so I'd like to uh, go ahead and, and take a look at the next slide. I'm sorry, we don't have a clicker yet. Uh, they were mentioning that this is part of what, uh, you know, the, the transition. So hopefully one day we might be able to do that in another place, perhaps. But 
Uh, you'll notice that the identity of the letter writer is Peter. That's not a surprise. It begins, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He defines himself as an apostle. Do you know what the word apostle means? It's actually a simple word that just means someone who's sent. And so there are actually times in the New Testament where we're not quite sure whether somebody is an apostle in the sense of position of authority or merely an apostle in the sense that he's being sent. Well, here, Peter is talking from the perspective of one who has been sent by Jesus Christ and is in a particular position of authority. As we think about this particular individual, one of the fascinating things about the book of 1 Peter is how Peter develops themes within his letter that coincide so naturally with the gospel. And by that, I mean the four gospels that have been given to us. And this is totally unsurprising, isn't it? Because Peter's the same guy who walked with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you remember, he was one of the first apostles or the first of, of the disciples. His brother actually met Jesus first, but his brother runs to him and says, we have seen, we have met the Messiah. He's the one John the Baptist has been talking about. And he's here. Come meet him. And Peter comes and goes out with Jesus fishing. And Jesus does miraculous works. And Peter believes and trusts in Jesus. He rises up to be the leader among the apostles. How do we know he's the leader among the apostles? Every single time that the list of apostles is given, guess whose name is first? Peter. And guess whose name is last? You probably know that one. Uh, the betrayer. Because they're ordered in the range of importance in terms of, of what they did and, and what they served. So here's Peter. He ranks up high, but if we were to take time, and, and I gave you the opportunity, uh, come up with three words. You think about Peter. Define this guy in three words. I bet three words probably come to your mind. Now, one of those might be that he's a bit uh, of a guy, maybe this isn't one word, but he walks around with a sandal in his mouth a lot. You ever notice that in the Gospels? He likes to open his mouth, and he really shouldn't have. Uh, you know, he's up on the mountaintop experience. He's seeing all of this glory. He sees the glory of Jesus. He gives a glimpse of his true identity. And Peter doesn't know what to say, and so instead of saying nothing, which was appropriate, he says, well, let me build uh, basically a temple kind of a structure for all three of you. No, Peter, you missed it. <laughs> There's only one glowing here, <laughs> and that is Jesus. He often also opens his mouth uh, we know the experience of him with following Jesus. I will say a lot of people criticize Peter because he betrayed Jesus. He comes to the high priest's uh, temple area while Jesus is being questioned. And he's asked three times by that little girl, or once at least by the little girl, but he's asked three times if he knows Jesus and he denies him three times. Now, I do think we need to recognize that at least Peter was seeking to be close to Jesus. Where are the rest of the apostles? I don't know. Where are the rest of these disciples? They're gone. They fled. At least Peter's there, but, oh, Peter, Jesus warned him, didn't he? Peter, pray with me. Satan 
wants to sift you like wheat. And what is Peter doing? Oh, the weakness of the flesh. Jesus says, the flesh is weak, the spirit's willing, the flesh is weak. And oh, have we not experienced that in prayer? And Peter falling asleep, and so now he's betrayed Jesus. And I get the sense that Peter has given up in many ways. He really thinks himself unworthy of Jesus. He knows Jesus has risen from the dead. So what's he doing? He's back to fishing. And Jesus comes to the shore. You remember this, this, uh, this experience? He, Jesus comes to the shore and he calls out. And when they discover that it's Jesus, because he tells them to throw their, their uh, netting and, and it's overflowing, they know it's Jesus, what does Peter do? He can't wait for the boat to get back. So he jumps out of the boat into the Sea of Galilee and swims so that he could be with Jesus and he sits with Jesus and Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, feed my sheep. You know, this is the same guy, if you have your Bibles there in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 says this, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. The one who is told to shepherd is talking to the elders among this group, and he says, shepherd them well. He's been handed a treasure, and he's handing it off to others. There are so many connections between this letter and Peter, but Peter is the same guy, having betrayed Jesus and having been forgiven, he's the same guy in Acts chapter 2. He stands in Jerusalem, the very place that had just crucified his Lord, not many days after. And he stands in Jerusalem and he begins preaching the word. And thousands are hearing and listening and, and obeying the scriptural teaching about repenting and believing. And the Sanhedrin, the very people who had condemned Jesus to die, draw Peter in and they say to him Peter you must stop preaching now I want you to notice something about Peter Peter he's a fisherman but they say of him we're hearing this man and he is like an educated man and he says to these people the ones who just crucified his Lord that I cannot listen to you for the Lord has asked me to preach the word this is the man who's written the very letter that sits before you today. So think of that as we read this letter, as we work through it. This is not some random person, but this is the very servant of the Lord, an apostle, given this task to guide us. And numerous times throughout this letter, we're going to find opportunities to turn and look at Peter and Jesus and to see how Jesus' own words influenced the letter of 1 Peter. So Peter is called the rock. In fact, his name is actually Simon. That's his actual name. But Jesus says to him, Simon, I'm going to name you the rock. And in fact, that name stuck. He is Simon Peter. 
And in fact, 2 Peter begins that way. I am Simon Peter. But here, he just refers to himself as Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, could you head to the next slide? I'd like to, to, to note how he begins his letter here. For Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he ends this introductory section the way that almost all letters in the ancient world were introduced, or letters in the Christian ancient world. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Here's a prayer that Peter makes for the people that he's writing to. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. But who exactly are these people? Turn to the next slide if you would. Who are these people? And I'm going to mention three elements of who these people are, and every single one of them is going to be significant for our interpretation of this letter. We have to understand who these people are because it helps us then to put ourselves in their sandals. To say, what was, Je- what was Peter saying, and how should that influence us today? The first is geographical, and here I simply want us to understand where they were. And if you go to the next slide, you notice here in in verse 1, it says, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He begins with this phrase, in the dispersion. Now that's a really interesting phrase. What does it mean that they are in the dispersion? Well, the next slide gives us an Old Testament passage, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 4. Are you familiar with the Old Testament Israelites and their experience of walking through uh, the desert, going into Egypt, their whole history? Deuteronomy is written as they're just about to enter into the promised land. And in Deuteronomy chapter 30, we get this note by the Lord. And because he's sovereign and he knows all things that are to come to pass, He indicates to them that in fact they will one day fail, that they one day will be taken out of the land in which they are about to possess. But he says this, even if you have been banished, that is the exact same word that Peter uses here, uh, that's used from from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, even if you have been banished, dispersed, to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord God will gather you and bring you back. I think Peter here is connecting something. He's saying something about our identity. We're going to develop this a little bit more, but this is a hint for us. There is a similarity between us and Israel. Now, I, like Pastor Brian, am a dispensationalist. Now, don't get all too confused with that big word. It just simply means that I believe that what God says in the Old Testament is going to come come to pass exactly as God says in the Old Testament. So one of the things is, he says in this very passage, that the people will be dispersed and that he will bring them back. And I think that refers to Israel. Nevertheless, one of the things that Peter does is he draws analogy between the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament. There are similarities between us. And one of the things he's saying about us is that we in this age are people who are outside of a homeland. We're going to develop that again in just a moment. But you'll notice on the next slide that these are people in this geographic region. Now that may be very small for you to see. I'm not sure how much you can see it. But that central region there, uh, perhaps the most bold section there, says Turkey. Turkey, modern-day Turkey. 
And the locations that he gives here, the people are dispersed in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Those five regions are the region of Turkey, modern-day Turkey, which is about the size of, uh, of Montana. If you can see, directly underneath Turkey is the Mediterranean Sea. And on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea, down and to the right, you have Jerusalem. Now just, uh, was it two weeks ago? Uh, my wife and I were, were able to be in Jerusalem. And the interesting thing about the ancient world is that we probably could have gotten in a car right there. And within maybe four hours, we would have been up to that region. It's just fascinating how small and large at the same time it is. Of course, we have the benefit of a car. Jesus didn't. And so, so that the, the, the spacing is a bit distinct. But this is the same region, by the way, in which you're going to find the letters to Ephesians, Galatians, Colossians, the book of Revelation, the letters to the churches. It's all to the same region. This region had become heavily populated with Christian converts. Peter writing, I think, in around 62 or 64 AD, is writing to believers who are probably about second-generation Christians. Uh, or maybe late, gen late first-generation Christians. We're not exactly sure. But he's writing to this populated region in which there's 129,000 square miles. One of the interesting things about this region is that there are two, two of the cities that he mentions are major population centers. Thousands upon thousands of people. But then a couple of the other ones are mountainous regions that are isolated peoples. And the reason I mention that is because it highlights for us that he's writing to people who have very little in terms of a social identity together. My wife and I have had opportunity to live in various places. We've lived in Philadelphia, and we've lived in Wisconsin. Those two places are a little different. Wisconsin, uh, you know, I mean, you, you've got to travel a little bit to kind of find your neighbor sometimes. Philadelphia, you just look over at your shoulder, and there they are. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a very populated center. And you know, life is different. When we went to Philadelphia, we had just been in Wisconsin, and we waved to people. Don't do that. <laughs> they think there's something wrong, all right? Um, and then you move back, and then people are waving to you, and you're like, whoa, what, what's, what's going on? It's it just the experience of life is vastly different between those groups. And the reason I mention that is because Peter is writing to these five regions who are vastly different in terms of the populace. Some are heavily culturized. Some are what we might call backwoods kind of people. They've lived this way for a long time. They're going to keep living that way. But they're united in something. They're united in their shared faith in Jesus Christ. And that makes them united in a way distinct from the rest of the, of the world. And so these are, these are the people. Go ahead and go to the next slide. One of the key questions that's asked of the book of 1 Peter is this. Are the readers of this letter mostly Gentile or are they mostly Greek? And 
there are some who want to say that they're mostly Greek, or Je- Jewish. Uh, and the reason they want to say they're Jewish is because Peter uses all kinds of language that comes from the Old Testament. In fact, if you have your scriptures there in chapter 2, notice what he does in verse 9. He says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter mentions four descriptions of these people. Every one of them is actually a description of the people of Israel. And so some say, well, this is clearly Israel because Peter wouldn't use the, me- the words of the Old Testament to refer to these people. Uh, another reason, some think that the idea of them in dispersion, they're not in the promised land anymore, and so they've, they've been moved out. But I think that, in fact, these are Gentiles, not Jews. And the reason I believe that is because notice chapter 4, verse 3. Here's what he says. The time that has passed, and he's talking about the past of these people. He says, the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And then he makes a list of things. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. And so what he's saying is this. These are the things you used to do. And the time that's passed suffices for doing all those things. You live a new life now. But here's the question. Were these vices the things Jews were known for? Again, we were just in Israel. And I can tell you that the people who identify distinctively as Jewish, they're, they're not generally known for these sorts of things. They're known for their strict moral piety. So I don't think this is in reference to the Jewish people, or I'm sorry, to the Gentiles, uh, or, or to the Jewish people, because the Jewish people were not associated this way. Look at one other passage with me, 114. He says this, Do not be conformed, this is the middle of verse 14, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So what exactly is their former ignorance? Uh, He then talks about their previous faith as a futile faith. Notice this in verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Let me ask you. Do you think Peter would have said to Jewish people that their forefathers held a futile faith? Certainly not. So these people are Gentiles. And that helps us then to understand that when Peter uses language about the Old Testament, about the Old Testament people of God, in reference to people of the New Testament, the church, what he's saying is this. There are analogies between the people of Israel and the people of God. They're called out from the nations to live distinctively different lives. I think that's Peter's point. Let's go to the next slide. I mentioned their geographical identity. I want to mention a second identity, and it comes directly from the passage here. Notice what what Peter calls them in verse 1. He's talking about himself. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now he turns to who they are, and he says, to those who are elect exiles. 
Now, you'll notice that one of the things that I'm going to bring up consistently in this study of 1 Peter is the idea that Peter is saying we are elect exiles. And if you subtract one of those two things, we're merely elect, you've only got half the picture. Yes, we're elect. But part of that election, that chosenness by God, that change that the Holy Spirit brings, makes us exiles. We're familiar with the language of exile. Uh, The Apostle John is uh, popularly known to have been exiled to the island of Patmos when he wrote the gospel, or I'm sorry, the, the book of Revelation. He was taken by the Romans and exiled. He was taken and placed on an island where he could not escape. That's not quite the type of exile that Peter's talking about here. He's talking about a spiritual exile. And the exile is this, that we are at home in a place that we are not presently in. Our homeland is elsewhere. And so we are presently exiled from our homeland. There's another way that this word is often translated. It's sometimes stranger, sojourner, or probably the one that most resembles uh, what language we would use today, foreigner. Foreigner. In fact, look in 2.11 with me. Here's what Peter says. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners or foreigners and exiles. Where exactly does Peter get this idea that we are foreigners, that we're exiles? He gets it from the Old Testament. If you go to the next slide, we're going to see a couple of passages that help us to understand this language. Here's Genesis 23. It says, Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife Sarah and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am a foreigner and stranger. I've italicized those words because those are the exact words Peter uses. I am a foreigner and and stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial place here so I can bury my dead. Here's Abraham. His wife has just died. He is among the promised land, but he doesn't own it yet. If you remember, he was promised the land, But he was told, you'll have to wait 400 years before you get it because the sins of the Amorites is not yet full. And so God says to him, but you will receive this land. This will be yours. So Abraham says, I want to bury my wife here. But right now I'm a stranger and foreigner. This isn't my land. If you go to the next slide, it's interesting how this develops in the Old Testament, though, because notice Psalm 39, 12. This is a psalm of David. One thing you probably know about David, David is where? In the promised land. He's a king in Israel. But notice what he says. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Do not be deaf to my weeping. I dwell with you as a, notice these words, same exact words. I dwell with you as a foreigner, a stranger, as all my ancestors were. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, okay, yes, 
God, I am in the promised land, but I know that this promised land is not the promised land. There is, a, there is the promised land, and all my ancestors, even the ones who have lived in the promised land, have not been in the promised land. And this is pinnacled for us in the book of Hebrews, and that's the next passage we have here. He's, Hebrews chapter 11 If you're familiar with Hebrews 11, you know it's the hall of faith. The author of Hebrews is outlining what faithful people of previous generations looked like. And this, I think, is the heart of Hebrews chapter 11. He says, these all died in faith. Or in other words, they still had faith. They still were believing. But they had not received the things promised. But they saw them and greeted them from afar. Do you see what he's saying? If we were to read Hebrews chapter 11, you would read about various people who had experienced great promises of God, great victories. But the author of Hebrews says, but these people, they died still in faith because they were looking for something else. There was still something that lay in front of them. They saw them. They greeted them from afar. In other words, they saw them and they said, yes, that is what I want. And having acknowledged, notice the language here, that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus or this way, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Now, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return to that land. But, as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly home. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Turn to the next slide, if you would. 1 Peter 5.13, I think, verifies that this is exactly what Peter is saying. Notice, he, be, he ends his letter with this statement in 5.13. He says, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Now, the second part is quite, quite easy to interpret. Mark, my son, is John Mark. He's the guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Church history tells us that Peter and John Mark were very good friends. But who is this lady who's at Babylon? If we ask where Babylon is, the immediate thing that comes to our mind is the place where the Israelites were exiled. Do you remember that? When they were taken out of the promised land, where were they exiled to? They were exiled to Babylon. And you say, well, maybe that's where Peter was. The problem is Babylon was destroyed. Unless, of course, he went to the ruins in order to write the letter, which would be a bit odd. Instead, do you know what Babylon stands for? And we see this in the book of Revelation. It is code word for a different place. It's code word for Rome. And part of the reason that they didn't want to mention Rome, we'll mention in just a moment, particularly because there's some persecution that's coming straight from Rome. 
Rome is the motherland. It's the homeland. This is the place where the government resides. And we get a sense immediately from reading the book of 1 Peter that there's tensions between this fledgling social group called Christians and the Romans. To the degree that the Romans are called Babylonians, by the way, that's not a, uh, that's not a positive thing. <laughs> you wouldn't want to be called Babylonian. And what Peter's saying here is this, that the people in Rome, mostly Gentile, some Jewish for sure, but the people in Rome, what are they? They are currently in exile. And the church, she who is at Babylon is the church in Rome. The church in Rome sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. That's actually how a number of other books end, that a church sends greetings, as does someone else. So this is the church. And Peter is saying, I am in exile. You are in exile. We are all foreigners. Friend, did you know that you are a foreigner in this world? Would you hit the next slide? What exactly does it mean to be a sojourner in exile? And you could click through the things that are on here. I think there are three things that it tells us. First, we find the customs of the people we live amongst rather odd. Second, the people we live among find our customs odd. Or maybe we could just simply say they find us odd. Third, it means that our hope and our anticipation are forward-looking. Let me just meditate on this for just a moment. Should the church look different than the world? It should. Should the world find us strange? They actually should. Now, not strange in the, uh, you know, Amish kind of a sense where people are driving by taking pictures because, you know, we're, we just look a little different. We don't necessarily have to dress extremely distinctively. Uh, we, we don't have to have all of these external identifiers that make us different because people should just know simply by understanding us, by seeing us live, there's something different about that person. And why should this be? Because you believe in a world to come, don't you? Does that change your life today? Do you believe that there is a judgment that is coming in which every person will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe that we ought to honor God with our bodies and with our lives in this age? And if the answer to those questions is yes, then we are distinct. Then we do live different. Our, our calendars look different than our neighbors. Our giving patterns look different than our neighbor. Our language looks different than our neighbor. What we watch, what we listen to, what we import into our lives is different than our neighbors because they have a different hope. They have a different anticipation. They don't believe in the world to come. So it should be that we find ourselves as strangers and foreigners. We, we live in a weird time, I must admit in which we are beginning to experience what the people in Peter's day were always experiencing. I am convinced that we are living in Rome 
What do I mean by that? The morality in which we are seeing quickly change in our nation is a morality that is simply shifting back to the morality of the Roman times. I mean, there are, there are some nuances. I mean, they, they didn't know anything about transgenderism and all that sort of thing. But the idea that man was the master of his own fate is exactly what we see playing out today. And so what we're beginning to see is that the book of 1 Peter is so much more evidently appropriate and applicable to us today because we're beginning to see more and more that we are weird. We are different than the world. And that that's okay. And in fact, that our differentness is a result of God's work in our lives. So that we glory in our difference. Even though, even though, and get this, even though it is the very difference that brings the tension with our world. We can't agree to what the world agrees to. Scripture calls us salt and light. We understand the light. The light is the expression of what the gospel is so that others might believe and trust. But we are also salt. And in the ancient world, salt was not used for a seasoning. Well, it could have been a little bit of a seasoning, but it was actually used to preserve meat. That was its major function. We are then a preservative in the world. We are a preservative in a decaying moral world. And guess what a moral world that is decaying in its morality would rather not have? It would rather not have that preservative because they want to run all the way in that direction. But to the degree that we stand up and say, we cannot go that way. We cannot give approval to that. We stand out like a sore thumb. And we will experience difficulty and challenge. It is our very differentness that will, and already to some degree has, identified us as Christians and causes challenge. Now that challenge is, in many ways, uh, saddening. Because it, it represents a change in our world. But to some degree... And I think we're going to see this as we work through the book of 1 Peter. That very difference provides opportunities for the gospel that we did not previously have. And so, despite this tension, I believe that God is going to use it in us and through the church for good. Could you go to the next slide for me, please? One of the things, and, and I've got to move quickly here, that we have to understand about ancient Rome was that the glue that held the culture together was this thing called the imperial cult. And nowhere in all of the Roman Empire was the imperial cult more at play, more significant than in Asia Minor, that is modern-day Turkey, this place in which this letter was written. Why do I mention this? It's fascinating that the entirety of the calendar in Rome was designed around one man, Caesar Augustus. All the holidays, everything was about that man. And the general picture given was that he was a god. Whether God himself or a son of the god, it didn't really matter, but you know what he deserved? He deserved to be worshipped. And this region of Asia Minor 
united around emperor worship. And there's a reason for that. Because if you worship the emperor, guess what the emperor did for you? He sent you, uh, he sent you soldiers. They had all the money. He built things in your city. And so everybody wanted to be the city known for worshiping the emperor. The festivals, they would go down the city streets and they, they would ask people to come out of their houses that were on these city streets and offer, offer worship to Caesar right there at their doorstep. Let me ask you, if you're a believer, you've trusted in the Lord Jesus, could you offer that sacrifice? You couldn't. And immediately, you were observed and recognized to be different and perhaps even countercultural. You're, you're against Rome because you're, you're not coming alongside Caesar. You're not giving him honor. My reason of drawing our attention to this is because the people in 1 Peter are experiencing great trouble, great persecution. And I think this is the center point of it. Their embrace of Christ makes them not able to engage culturally like they used to. And this is creating tension with the people. Go ahead and go to the next slide. We'll talk more about that as the weeks come. But did I mention that Peter is drawing an identity for us? And the identity is not just elect, but it is elect exile. In fact, the next slide shows us that. We are elect exiles. What exactly does it mean that we are elect exiles? It means that we are chosen by God. And that very chosenness leads us to be foreigners in the world in which we used to be at home in. The Lord saved me at the age of 23, or 22, right around that time. It's kind of hard to pinpoint a time, but, but the Lord saved me at that time. And when he did, my life dramatically changed. I couldn't do what I used to do. And I literally mean that. I could not do what I used to do. The Holy Spirit would not let me. I remember, I, I remember sitting against the Lord once and doing something I had done in the past, I don't know how many times, but, but, I, but I sinned against the Lord and I remember literally ripping my hair out <laughs> because my heart was changed. God makes us different. Election changes a person. And that election makes us exiles. And the evidence of our exilic nature, that is, that we're rejected by the world, gives us evidence that we are, in fact, elect. So, here's what I'm going to suggest in the weeks to come. That we're going to find Peter identifying for us Two different elements. Sometimes he's going to be saying, I'm talking about the election, the glory of what God has done in your life. And then other times, he'll step over to the foreignness, the exile, the stranger side. And he says, and I know you're experiencing difficulty today. But don't forget when you're experiencing difficulty that you are elect And this balance is something we're going to find throughout the midst of 1 Peter. Let me encourage you this week. I want you to look at your life. 
And I want you to think about, how does my life reflect this status? Because remember, at the beginning we talked about, this is our born-again identity. What are we as born-again believers? Here's the identity that God puts uh, forward for you. We live in a time when everybody wants an identity. What are you? Who are you? What's your sexuality? All these identity markers. Here's the identity of God's people. You are elect, chosen from the foundation of the world to be God's people. And that means that you are a foreigner in this world. And as we walk through the book of 1 Peter, we're going to see him emphasizing both elements of that. Would you join me as we go to our Lord together in prayer? Father, I'm thankful for the identity you've granted to us in Christ that we are elect exiles. In many ways, Father, I must admit that if I could change some things, I I may not want to be on the exile side of things. I don't always enjoy being a foreigner. And yet, Father, as we're going to discover in your word, you've promised that those who live as foreigners in this world will be extremely rewarded for that. And indeed, that our foreignness gives opportunity for your name to be praised. And so we thank you for that. We thank you most of all that you have, through Christ, chosen us for the blessings of eternal life and the changed life in this age. May we this week Live out that identity as elect exiles. In Jesus' name, amen.